0: It can be such a profound time in Mm -hmm. your life. It can be a profound time of healing on emotional and psychological levels because of how it brings people together and into the moment and encourages them to be present with each other.
1: That time in life has the potential to be so beautiful. And so when you are a part of making it that way for somebody, or you get to have the privilege of sort of being in that space as that's happening for somebody, it's quite special.
0: Yeah, it reprioritizes everything. Very quickly all of the stuff that really doesn't matter, that's just superfluous, falls away and you get to the heart of of what it means to live.
2: Hey fellow mortals. My name's Lauren Daly. I'm a palliative care doctor, motherless daughter, longtime griever, and believer that having a healthy relationship with death Is the secret to living a more fulfilled life. And on today's episode of Talk Dying to Me, we're going to be talking about, well, dying. But I mean like actually dying, like the process that happens as a body shuts down and goes from living to dead. We're going to touch on what it looks like, what we know to be true, about what is arguably the single most significant transition of our lives, and also some of the less tangible parts of dying, the things that can't be so easily explained and perhaps challenge us to consider what comes next. To help me demystify the dying process, I've enlisted the help of two people who know a thing or two about dying.
0: My name is Laura McRitchie and I've been a palliative care nurse for coming into my ninth year.
1: My name's Amanda.
2: I've been a palliative care nurse for four years. Lara and Amanda have collectively been at the bedside for hundreds of deaths, and they are well-versed in what to expect near end of life, particularly when it comes to expected deaths caused by serious illnesses like cancer and chronic diseases such as heart disease or lung disease or kidney failure. And those are exactly the types of deaths that we're going to talk about today. Before we dive in, I just want to outline a common experience I have as a palliative care doctor. So it's not uncommon for me to get called in urgently to the bed of a dying patient by their loved one, usually. And typically that person is freaking out and they're like, oh my God, this is terrible. They're suffering. I can't believe what this looks like. Please make it stop. And I usually rush into the room expecting to see the patient in total distress and having like a complete pain crisis only to usually find them looking quite comfortable and actually doing all of the things that we expect a body to do as it's dying. What this highlights for me over and over again is that in modern society, we are so freaking far removed from the dying and the dying process. We completely freak out when the time comes to face it. And we get so caught up in our own discomfort that truly we lack the ability to be present with the people we love in their final moments. And as someone who works very closely with those who are dying each and every day, I find this so sad.
0: It can be a very traumatizing experience an even more traumatizing experience than it needs to be because of all of the unknowns, all of the things where we don't understand about death, the dying process,
2: So obviously we can't know everything about the dying process. There is a lot about it that will always be unknown. But there are a few parts about dying that we actually know quite well, particularly the physical changes a dying body experiences. What I found in my practice is that talking about what dying actually looks like before
1: you get to the point where you have to face it can be incredibly helpful entering and leaving the world obviously are very different, but there's a labor to it. So you labor in birth and there's a process with phases and it's the same with death. So there are the stages and actively dying has its stages and has what we can anticipate. So in palliative care and
2: hospice care, we often talk about active dying, which is a term that's used to describe those final hours to days of life. And it's a lot like active labor. Active dying is typically marked by a clear set of physical changes that journey the body through to end of life. And these changes are predictable, they're largely irreversible, and they signal an important transformative experience, which sure sounds a lot like birth to me. I often ask people who are dying to describe to me their ideal circumstances surrounding death. And by and large, most people tell me that they want to die in their sleep. They want to drift away gently into that good night. Well, do I have some good news for you. Most people actually do die in their sleep.
0: They're going to be sleepier. They're going to be interacting less, sleeping more often.
2: And in most cases, people who are dying will eventually drift off into a deep sleep from which they cannot wake. And that could last for several days before their body actually dies. There are a number of reasons why this might happen, but usually it's a combination of things, including metabolic changes as organs are shutting down. This impacts the brain's ability to stay awake, and a lot of people blame me specifically, (laughs) for giving medications that are making people more sleepy as they're nearing end of life. But honestly, even if we were to take away all of those medications that people are often on for symptom control and pain control, they're likely to still be very sleepy and even unconscious in those final hours to days. Along with sleeping more, it's also very normal for patients
1: to not want to eat or drink very much as they're nearing end of life. It can be quite difficult for the family when the person stops eating completely and the worry that they're just gonna feel hunger and thirst until they pass away. Nobody wants that for their loved one. But the evidence suggests that, that you don't feel hunger and in fact that when you try and get somebody to eat or you introduce things into the body that it can no longer cope with, that you might be causing more harm and more discomfort. I always say that the body
2: knows how to die, and one of the most natural things the body does in preparation for dying is that it doesn't feel like eating or drinking. Despite the body not feeling hungry or thirsty in the final days of life, they do not die from starvation or dehydration. This is a common misconception. The death is caused by the underlying disease process, and a common byproduct of most advanced
1: illnesses is a reduced desire to eat and drink. We encourage listening to the person when they say they're not hungry, or they don't want to eat anymore. The topic of
2: hydration and nutrition near end of life is really complex and culturally nuanced. It's beyond what we're able to cover today, but I think a key takeaway is that at a certain stage in the dying process, IV fluid and artificial nutrition really have no benefit. They can only cause harm. They're not going to make that person live longer. People who are actively dying are often so profoundly weak that their ability to swallow is completely compromised. And so if you try to feed that person food, there's a very high risk that they will choke, which means food will go into their lungs and cause all kinds of badness, including shortness of breath and possibly even severe pneumonia. In terms of IV fluid and artificial hydration, if you pump a body without any kidney function full of fluids, that fluid will have nowhere to go and it can cause swelling and bloating, which can be really uncomfortable. And it's not uncommon for that fluid to actually travel into the lungs and cause a lot of congestion and shortness of
1: breath. And those are things that we like to avoid. Thirst might not just be the feeling of needing water. It's easier to say thirsty when you might actually mean my mouth is dry. So we try to do really good mouth care, and that's a great opportunity for family to get involved. So when you used to be a part of feeding, now you can be a part of doing really good mouth care. When people are dying, it's
2: actually really common for them to breathe through their mouth. And so their mouth can get really dry and kind of gunky looking. So mouth care is the process of cleaning out the mouth and keeping it nice and moist. That's right. I just said everyone's favorite word, moist. We actually have these little sponges on sticks that kind of look like lollipops and you can dip it into water or sometimes people like to put it into tea or the person's favorite drink like a nice glass of red wine. Just kidding. Although that would be my preference. And they just coat the mouth with the moisture from the liquid and sometimes they may even use a lubricant so that the mouth doesn't feel
1: dry. Some of the other signs that are probably less noticeable to family but are quite indicative that the person's sort of transitioning to active dying is things like a decrease in urine output.
0: Kidneys shutting down so people are avoiding less. That's also something we watch for.
2: At some point we may see no urine output at all and at that stage we know that death is likely to happen within a short period of time,
1: usually hours to very short days.
0: Temperature changes are a big one.
1: The body has a harder time regulating temperature. There are a couple of factors that could impact
2: fluctuating temperatures in a dying body. One of those are central nervous system changes that actually impact our ability to regulate the body temperature. Another possible factor is that as the heart becomes weaker, it's less able to pump blood all the way to the hands and the feet. And so they may feel cooler than the rest of the body.
0: Sometimes you can see, you know, cold feet, warm hands, or the reverse, or one leg is warm and the other one is cold, and it fluctuates.
1: I think we want everybody to be warm because that's comfortable, but sometimes it doesn't matter how many warm blankets you put on somebody, their hands and feet are gonna be cold, and it's completely normal, and a change that most people notice when they grab their loved one's hand and it's quite cold. Sometimes their sort of center body and their torso will stay really hot and their hands and feet will get really cold. Or for some people, they might appear feverish. So they've got a sweaty brow and they they can be flushed and quite warm to touch. In addition to temperature changes, you
2: may notice the skin of a dying person start to mottle. Mottling is this lacy kind of pattern that shows up on the surface of the skin. It kind of looks like marbling
1: almost. The feet and the palms of the hands and quite commonly the knees too are the first to sort of turn bluey and kind of patchy. And similar
2: to the temperature changes that we see, modeling is also related to changes in circulation. The death rattle. The death rattle is a term used to describe the buildup of secretions in an airway of a dying body that is too weak to
1: clear them. The respiratory secretions are probably the most distressing symptom that can be relatively expected. What we know about the increase in respiratory secretions is that they're quite low in the chest. And we hear that sound and we equate it to phlegm in our throat, for example, that would make us want to clear our throat and cough it up. Thankfully, it's much lower than that. So there's not a lot. We, would, we wouldn't try to suction it out because it's not causing distress. We have medications that we can give to try and dry it out. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but I always stress to the family that it's worse for us to hear than it is for them to experience, and that if anything, it's it's more difficult for us than it is for them.
0: Changes in breathing, it's a really big one.
1: People have heard of Shane Stokes or apno breathing.
0: Apnea and Shane Stokes breathing, where you've got the depth of breathing changes starts off very shallow and then becomes more and more deep and then starts to also wane again and become more shallow.
2: Okay, so the respiratory control system, which is this system in our brain that regulates breathing, constantly gets feedback from the level of oxygen and carbon dioxide in our blood. And as the body is dying, the levels of carbon dioxide and oxygen in the blood change in a way that provoke irregular breathing,
1: and sometimes no breathing at all, and that's called apnea. The biggest shock to people is the apneic periods, so the breaks people take in their breathing. So sometimes people will have frequent deep breaths, and then a long period of no breathing. That's, I think, the hardest part for family in regards to breathing is when a person takes an apneic period, will they breathe again is always the question. It's like and this it,
2: anticipation. Yeah.
1: And the intensity rises instantly. Mm-hmm. And more often, sometimes people don't notice, but more often than not, if you're having a conversation, you're expecting this sound in the background. And when you don't hear it, everything stops and everybody looks over at the person and you wait. It can be 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 10 seconds, a minute. It can be so hard to watch and to wait for the next breath. For family it can be very difficult.
0: I think it's really important to know about that pattern in particular because sometimes people will misinterpret it when someone starts to really huff and puff as either shortness of breath or they're reacting to something in their environment when really it's the pattern of breathing. It's their new normal. When someone starts breathing irregularly within the same few seconds and there's no pattern to it, then typically I know that someone is really likely to be close and I'll stay in the room and try and prepare people for what's likely going to happen in the next few minutes.
2: What Laura's describing here are the final moments of life, a person's last breaths, and it's easy to label this transition, the transition of dying, as many bad things, as awful or overwhelmingly sad or tragic. And sure, it can be all of those things. But there can also be incredible beauty hidden away in those final moments. What are the words that come to mind when you think about when you've been present for the last breaths? Mm-hmm. How would
1: you describe that space, in that moment.
0: Mm. That's a challenge. (laughs) Well, profound, right? Obviously.
1: Yeah. The words that come up first for me are quiet, peaceful. Just because of the role I'm in, to me, privilege is a word, transformative, warm. It's like if there was a better way to describe closeness, like Mm. you haven't really been close to somebody like it's very rare to get to be that close to somebody in that way i more than the average person get to be close to people in an intimate way that is very specific and unique so when i'm in a room with a patient and their family as that's happening um, it's like a closeness and an intimacy
0: one of the the most profound experiences that i had We were able to grant all the wishes that they had around what they hoped for, for their loved one at this time in their life. And everything came together. And then when that person did die, it felt like, I know this sounds so strange, but it felt like a rebirth. It wasn't just a death. It was, um, oh, such relief and such joy that they had been able to make this the best experience possible. They felt like they had done right by their loved one. That was early on in my career. And I thought, oh, wow, what a, what a thing to, to aim for, you know, (laughs) nice to know that it's possible.
1: It was, I don't want to say perfect because death for everybody is so individualized. It happened. She passed away when she wanted to pass away. She passed away with all the people she wanted in the room. There was not a, part of it that was distressing and the moment about it that i'll never forget is she was in the bed and her family were all around her and certain people were close to her and they had all had a toast and a glass of champagne and everybody was dressed in their sunday best and it was the sun was shining everybody was quite quiet and then she burst her eyes open and looked around the room and said i have to say one more time i just love you all so much and everybody in the room sort of, yeah, like a little yeah. little giggle. Yeah. Um was like, oh, we love you too, we love you too. And the thought that everybody said what they needed to say and that everybody seemed so at peace and that she was just so comfortable and ready. She managed to slip out that last thing that she wanted <laughs> to say just that last time and the thought that her the last thing she saw was her family all around her laughing, I think it's pretty special.
2: So we've talked a lot about what dying often looks like and the unsuspected beauty that can be hidden away in those final moments.
1: But what about after a body dies? What happens then? People ask when they leave what will happen next. I'm careful what I say because I sometimes know the answer is actually gonna distress them. I also know that the less sort of mystery from the experience, the more normalized it will be.
2: One of the first things we do after a body dies is pronounce the person dead. This is essentially our final physical exam and is often done by nurses and sometimes doctors. Not to sound insensitive, but death is a pretty easy diagnosis to make. The exam involves applying a stethoscope to the chest to confirm there's no more heartbeat or breathing. And it also involves checking the pulses and making sure the pupils are no longer reacting to light. Pronouncing death is not particularly challenging clinically, but it certainly carries an emotional weight. It's an intense yeah. feeling. Maybe not heavy is the right word, mm-hmm. but it's like when you put your stethoscope to a chest and mm-hmm. there's a void, mm-hmm. and what you expect to hear mm-hmm.
1: is not there anymore, and mm-hmm. you li- you're listening so closely. Mm-hmm. And it's silent. The most intense part for me is actually checking pupil reaction. Not hearing a heartbeat doesn't... I don't get a physical reaction. And it doesn't impact me the same way looking into somebody's eyes Mm -hmm. and knowing that they're not there. Not even that the pupils aren't reacting, but that there's nobody... There's no spark. Yeah. After
2: the nurse or doctor completes the pronouncement of death... There are usually a number of opportunities to spend time with your loved one. Now, a lot of people think that it's weird or creepy to spend time with a body after the person's died. But it's only weird or creepy if you're spending time with the dead body of someone who's not your loved one. Spending time with somebody you love after their body has died can actually be incredibly special and meaningful. And it's something that I personally think we should do a lot more of.
0: Okay, it's gonna sound strange to a lot of people, but it's really powerful. And I think it's important to give people that that opportunity. And that is giving them loved ones a chance to get up into the bed Mm -hmm. and lie with their loved one, Mm
2: -hmm. both
0: before and after they die, even during. There's no real reason a lot of the time that people can't be that close if that's what they want to do. Mm -hmm. So I will always ask, you know i'll say we can we can make room in the bed mm-hmm. and you can have whatever time you need i love that you
2: do that cuz people often will just assume they're not allowed yes, yes. rather than a, and not ask cuz it's um, like hospitals are very intimidating places so yeah and even hospices but honestly so. a lot of that stuff is just habit exactly right? mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. why can't a loved one get up into bed and and be with their loved one as they're dying and and even afterwards saying goodbye and and you know having a cry and just having that chance to be with them one last time Mm -hmm. you know from what I've heard while it does sound and sometimes feel a little strange to people the feedback I've gotten is that they were very grateful for that opportunity yeah you know I believe
2: that Soon after death, the nurses have to prepare the body to either go to the morgue or directly to the funeral home. We call it shrouding.
0: Oh man, I feel so privileged to do this work. So privileged. And and that is just another piece of it for me.
1: It's a moment that I really cherish. Sometimes it's also a moment for me to have my closure and to sort of grieve for that person too and do what I need. So that I can move on mm-hmm. as well.
0: And if loved ones want to be a part of that process, then of course, of course, we, you know, engage them in that. Oftentimes people will want to perform, you know, a bath and they have a, a certain outfit that they'd like their loved one to be in, mm-hmm. or their loved one themselves had picked out before they died. Now I will use the flowers that are in the room, or I will, you know, encourage people, suggest. Let them know that it's something that we can do. If someone wants to sprinkle petals around their loved one, then we do it. If someone wants to hold a flower and lay a flower before their loved one is taken down to the morgue, then then we do it. And I think it can be a wonderful way of saying goodbye and Mm -hmm. just enrich that process and help people participate in Mm -hmm. that piece of it. Again, giving them a chance for closure. Again, giving them a chance for extending some sort of caring towards their loved one
1: one of probably the most beautiful sort of ceremonious preparations I've got to be a part of was a 40 something year old lady passed away. And it was her husband who stayed with me to wash the body and prepare her to go down to the morgue. The mm-hmm. way that he continued to care for her well past her last moments was really beautiful. And to get to be in that space mm-hmm. with them during that was very special. I'll never forget it. Sometimes it, 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 It does feel strange. Rigor mortis sets in to its max effect, I think about six to hours after death. And so generally the person hasn't become super stiff. Sometimes families stay for a while. So you do do that process numerous hours later and changing the body or washing the body when they've started to become stiff is uncomfortable for me. Is it uncomfortable because it's like, how do I put it?
2: it's that person's even closer to death than they were before. Like Mm -hmm. it's like they're more
1: dehumanized. I think does that make sense? Yeah. Or like before they were, this was their body. And like you were saying, this was their, the vessel they were in and their body. And so they've passed away and they've left it, but that's still how I see it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes by the time that we wash and prepare the body or we change the body into clothes, I think in my mind, it feels more like now this is the corpse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it goes from the person's body to now it's nobody's body. Mm. It's It's a corpse. It's a corpse. Yeah.
2: Interesting. So as I said earlier, there's a lot about death and dying that we know for sure. But of course, there is so much about the dying process that we don't know, that we'll never know. And the more mysterious parts of death, the parts that we can't medicalize or intellectualize. Personally, my favorite part about this work is what we're going to cover next.
0: You can't brain death as much yeah. as we would like to be able to identify all the variables and all the issues and and try and organize it into a manageable package. I have found personally that death is is um, completely discombobulating. That's my <laughs> favorite word for yeah. <laughs> it, because I have a hard time finding other you, you know regular words <laughs> to describe that feeling of when someone who has been present with you in this world, when their energy, their physical energy, is gone. Not sure where it goes. I've got many different disciplines of thought, of, of knowing that, have their own ideas about where someone goes when they die.
2: What's your favorite?
0: Well, I mean, my favorite theory is, is probably that, that the body is, is just a vehicle. And that a person is more than just their body, that they are, you know, a spirit of some sort. Some made up of some kind of energy that transcends the physical, wouldn't that be lovely?
2: As doctors, we aren't often at the bedside when people take their last breaths. But I've had the privilege of being present for those moments on a number of occasions, and Lara's take on the body being a vessel for something energetically beyond just the physical, be it spirit or soul or entity feels completely accurate to me. The ones that I've seen, that's been so true. Mm-hmm. Like that moment where someone stops breathing and then it's just so clear.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's, that thing that made them them is just gone. Yeah. You can see it like around, I find around like their mouth there's a hollowness suddenly there. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just because there's no movement. Is it
0: challenging for you to maintain hope for that theory um, with your training?
2: No, because a lot of medicine's bullshit. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I feel like no one can explain that. Medicine can't explain that. Yeah. No, so there's so much that medicine can't
1: explain that it's actually quite easy for me to oh, like exist that. in both realms sometimes when a person's passed away and you've pronounced them, they are dead, but I don't feel like they've left necessarily, or I think that it's the process is still happening. Like the person is definitely gone and I would still call them dead. Mm -hmm. I just sometimes notice that it's still a feeling that they're here. Yeah. And I feel the most the way that when those first words you were asking me to talk about, like the privilege and the warmth and the intimacy, I feel that the strongest before the space they take has sort of been emptied. The intensity sort of leaves me or the intimacy I feel leaves a little when I have that feeling that they're no longer in the room with Mm me, which isn't always the same moment as when I pronounce them.
2: It's interesting because it's just all of these experiences scientifically are unexplainable. Totally. And I'm sure so many sciencey people, mm-hmm. and I should be a sciencey person. I'm a doctor, <laughs> but there's a part of me that's like not like that at all. Yeah. But so many science people are gonna like roll their eyes and be like, totally. "Ugh, yeah. like what are they talking about? Yeah. When you're dead, you're dead." Yeah. But I totally get what you're saying. There is this true feeling of something that leaves the body, mm-hmm. and it's like when you're there with someone as they take their last breaths, that becomes as real as any scientific
1: fact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's things about being human that aren't scientific or mathematical or measurable, and that's definitely one of them. Yeah, I mean, what you've just described is like,
2: like the definition of spiritual connection Mm -hmm. with someone. Yeah. There's no cognitive part of that. No,
1: no. It makes me sad sort of to think that there's so many beautiful meaningful parts of it that can be lost and not recognized if you're if you're not open to it, mm-hmm. you know. All of this isn't
2: to say that the process of death and the moment of dying are to be taken lightly or that they aren't worthy of tremendous sorrow and grief. They absolutely are. But as we've just heard, it's possible to feel sadness and joy in the same heartbeat. To know that this time doesn't have to be shrouded in darkness or hidden away allows us to create space for love, for connection, for meaning. It allows us to honor A beautiful life lived all the way through to the very end of it. To hear from two people who spend their lives caring for the dying, describe what is often perceived as the most chaotic moment in our lives, as peaceful, warm, and intimate, tells me that wherever we're going, it can't be that bad. That's it for this month's episode of Talk Dying to Me. A huge thank you to Laura McRitchie and Amanda Stewart for sharing their unique and thoughtful insights on what dying actually looks like. This episode was written and produced by me, Lauren Daly. The post-production work on today's episode was done by the amazing team at Resonate Recordings. Our cover art was created by the oh-so-talented Wiki Turton. Thank you all for listening. If you're a fan of the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. Our next episode is set to drop January 19th, 2021. Until then, don't forget, one day you're gonna die.